Hello, and welcome to the 16th episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat, a podcast based upon my blog, which will cover shows, both plays and musicals, that I've seen in February of 2019. We're going to cover 15 shows today, two of which were on Broadway, three of which are musicals, and while I was in Minneapolis enjoying some snowy winter fun, I went to see a production at a professional theater company called Yellow Tree Theater in Osseo, Minnesota. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal here is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but really try to often review productions in other cities when I can. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company you may not have known about. I'm going to talk about the celebrated production of To Kill a Mockingbird, the classic novel from Harper Lee. We're going to go downtown to see Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge do two monologue plays at the Public Theater. I'm going to tell you about a one-act phantasmagoria filled with astonishing imagery and fascinating language. A comedy off-off-Broadway at the Tank, which is kind of like a foul-mouthed Saturday Night Live skit which lampoons the internet. And we're also going to cover a play which concerns itself about a political party-switching businessman who's in a relationship outside his marriage. He has no political experience, and he wants to run for president of the United States. This play sounds like it could have been written yesterday, but in fact, this one, it was called State of the Union, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning play from 1945, and it's being performed at the Metropolitan Playhouse. A lot of great stuff to cover this month, and I'm going to kick it off with the two productions I saw, which are on Broadway. We begin with Choir Boy at the Manhattan Theater Club. A debate over the history and meaning of Negro spirituals enlivens a classroom in the play Choir Boy. At a school for young black men, a student links the line, keep your eye on the plow, to the latter day, keep your eye on the prize, and eventually and significantly, to Yes We Can. Terrell Alvin McCraney won an Oscar for his screenplay for Moonlight. His ability to write memorable lines for young people trying to figure out their path in life is really in full display in this absorbing, beautifully acted production. Farish Jonathan Young is the student at the center of the story. When the play begins, he is singing the school's theme song at the commencement ceremony for the graduating class. A bully hurls some mean-spirited epithets his way, briefly throwing off his timing. Farris is effeminate and presumably gay. Headmaster Morrow, played by an excellent Chuck Cooper, well, he advises him to tone it down a bit. In his final year of school, this uber-talented kid has now been put in charge of the choir. The story which follows is a fairly typical coming-of-age story. There's the sensitive kid, a spoiled rich one with followers, and the warm-hearted jock. 
these young men are telegraphed early. What makes the choir so interesting is its skill in weaving the drama of being an outsider. The memories and passed down histories of centuries of slavery and hardship inform the men who inhabit this stage. In today's world, how does a gay teenager with big talent and even bigger dreams safely navigate their passage into adulthood with so much baggage to carry? Jeremy Pope plays a powerfully complicated Ferris. Equally endearing and maddeningly self-destructive, his youthful exuberance is fortified with an acerbic defensive wit. We see this personality trait early on, and we know there will be confrontation looming. Mr. Pope's performance is so completely realized that it never really appears to be acting. The same can be said for the rest of this talented cast. As Farris's roommate and compassionate jock friend, John Clay III nicely develops one character who may be pointing humanity to the future. The drama in this tale is punctuated with performances by the choir boys. The songs are expertly rendered and comment on the themes contained in the play, such as, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, or I Got a Rainbow Tied Around My Shoulders. Austin Pendleson arrives at the school and is the only white person in this play. He is assigned to teach a liberal arts class meant to encourage thinking outside the box. When these young men engage in debate about Negro spirituals and what they mean today, the play explodes with ideas. Tensions and youthful indiscretions populate this drama with effectively uncomfortable language. Farris is not simply a targeted gay wallflower. While wearing his armor, he can also be brutally mean-spirited. Trip Coleman's expert direction and David Zinn's simple set design frames this drama, enabling the challenges of youth to remain our central focus. Mr. McCraney is a talented writer who has created multiple stories about being young and gay and black. In Choir Boy, his efforts are made richer with the addition of song. The spirituals still need to be sung. There is still mourning and repression to be overcome. Racism is a pervasive theme in quite a few of this month's productions. Now we'll talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. When horror comes to supper, it comes dressed exactly like a Christian. Uttered by the town drunk, this quip is one of a slew of noteworthy ones from the eminently quotable To Kill a Mockingbird. I've personally endured dinners with showy, self-proclaimed Christians who are sadly misguided bigots filled with hatred. Harper Lee's 1960 novel takes place in the Jim Crow, Alabama of 1934. This classic has now been adapted into a mesmerizing new play by Aaron Sorkin. He was the author of A Few Good Men. Many of us have read and admired this iconic, Pulitzer Prize-winning work of American literature. With race relations in this country seemingly retreating backwards, the timing of this spectacular achievement is ideal. Celia Keenan-Bolger is Scout, an adult actress playing a very young girl. In the play's superbly effective structure, she is also one of the narrators, along with her brother Jem and their friend Dill, played by Will Pullen and Gideon Glick. 
the production smoothly transitions from memory play to courtroom drama to small town observations and back again. The three actors are astonishingly fine in capturing the innocence of youth, the mysteries of grand adventure, and the painful disillusionment of growing up in an unfair world. The role of Atticus Finch as the lawyer who represents an unjustly accused black man in the Deep South won Gregory Peck an Oscar. Jeff Daniels makes this man's emotions and belief system come alive so naturally. He is not a towering bastion of elitist liberalism, but an intelligent and ordinary man trying to do the right thing. Teaching his children proper behavior is of paramount importance. The scintillating dilemma explored here is the sizable gray area between the finely etched lines of right and wrong. To Kill a Mockingbird has been criticized, and even banned by imbecilic school boards, for its use of racial slurs, which frankly seem to accurately illuminate a time and a place. This production does not shy away from offensive language, and it is empowering. Mr. Sorkin also takes the opportunity to flesh out the major black characters of the accused Tom Robinson and the Finch's maid Calpurnia. Both performances by Gubenga Akinagre and Latanya Richardson Jackson are stellar. There is pain lurking everywhere in this play. Mirroring life, once you open your eyes, the truth cannot be unseen. Southern whites here are both villains and heroes. Erin Wilhelmy plays Mayela Eugle. She looks distressingly fragile. When she takes the stand to tell her story, the scene is raw and unforgettable. That moment takes place after her father has already spewed his own brand of venom. He's nicely played by Frederick Weller. Their words are searing and devastating. Both performances are awesome. Not to be outclassed, Dakin Matthews' Judge Taylor presides over this chaos as our spiritual guide traversing the murky waters of American justice. Miss Lee's father was an attorney who defended two black men accused of murder in 1919. In her book, The Legal Profession is certainly also on trial in To Kill a Mockingbird. Empty jury box chairs are presumably for us, the audience, to fill. Horace Gilmer is the prosecutor who shovels and spreads shit all over this particular case. Kudos to Stark Sands for an indelible portrait of a beacon of immorality. Each member of this cast achieves greatness within director Bartlett Scher's exquisite storytelling flow and movement. With Miriam Buther's fluidly dreamlike yet simultaneously realistic set design, this production is a marvel to behold. Racism, still frighteningly relevant in our imperfect society, and quickly becoming more worrisome. One of the Oscar-nominated live shorts this year is Skin. It actually won the other day for Best um, Live Short. This film brutally tackles racial violence dished out by beer-guzzling, gun-toting, angry white men. Sometimes I find these movies uncomfortably straddling the fence between condemnation and glorification. Harper Lee's story contains repulsive events, but never crosses any line. We ultimately know what is right and what is wrong. 
evil is not celebrated. To Kill a Mockingbird addresses the sad truth that mobs have no conscience or shame. This play should be performed on American stages for decades to come. Not to condemn or glorify, but to remember and enlighten. One can only continue to hope and educate the next generation. Prayer obviously hasn't been the salvation. We need elected leaders and appointed judges whose compasses point squarely at humanity. People who stand firmly on the side of doing the right thing. Everyone needs to make a date with Scout and examine, or re-examine, the vein of hatred that nearly split this country in two, and still threatens to again. Continuing this month's theme of debating, discussing, and analyzing racism, we'll head downtown to the off-off-Broadway theater of the new city, and a musical titled Betty and the Bell Rays. The time is 1963, and Betty Belorowski is graduating from high school. She is listening to the radio and hears all the kids from one of her favorite artists. Kennedy Jazz confidently plays Love Jones, who, along with the ensemble, opens this musical. The timestamp is instant and recognizable. The lyric is, Doo-wop, shoo-wop, quack-quack, followed by, All the kids are doing it. The duck-like dance moves are fun, the lyrics appropriately silly, and Betty and the Bell Rays swivels and shakes with a very promising start. Director William Electric Black wrote the books and lyrics for this show, which was performed in this same theater in 2007. Given our uneasy historical and now elevated racial anxiety as a nation, this revisit is well-timed. Betty is a young white lady who has just graduated from high school. Her parents want her to get a job. She loves to listen to the Negro radio station in her very segregated town. After meeting two young ladies on the line for a phone company job, a plan is hatched. They are going to form a girl group and get signed to the all-black owned and operated Soul Town Records. Betty's pals are Zip Gun, played by Alexandra Welsh, a reform school tomboyish dunderhead. And then there's Connie Anderson, played by Kalia Lay, who reminded me of Marty Maraschino in Greece. Miss Lay's crying scene while waiting for a job interview was hilarious for its variety and length. Miss Welch created an amusing and convincing physical portrait of the switchblade tough gal, but she saddled with some clunky odd words. There's no television in her home, so she says, Life really blows without a yabba dabba do. Oy. Paulina Breeze nails Betty's naivete and the wide eyed optimism of youth. That's vital because the civil rights movement is the serious topic of this show. On the other side of town, Love Jones lives with her mother Loretta, who takes in ironing and also teaches singing. A musical high point is her song, Lord, Lord, Lord. This one is Loretta's lesson, and she says, You gotta go to church to sing soul music. A recent graduate of NYU, Eigner Mizell's performance is nicely sung. With a mature, fully realized characterization, this show gets the thematic depth needed. Her words, eyes, and body language 
reflect both the weariness of life and the hope for a better future. All of the featured roles in this production double as ensemble members in the frequent and enjoyable group numbers. Finally directed, everyone slips into chorus mode and you'd never guess they just had a big scene moments before. The songs in this musical are stylistically faithful to the period, which is good and bad. Since there are so many repetitive refrains, they occasionally overstay their welcome. Those of you who know me know I'm a big Blondie fan, and Deborah Harry's world tour keyboardist from the past is a co-composer. Her name is Valerie Ghent, and the music director of the show, Gary Schreiner, created the score, which really effectively captures the era well. The tunes slide effortlessly between girl group doo-wop and richer fare such as the delicious song Soul Stew. 1963 was a pivotal time in America. Gone were car hops and the Donna Reed show to be replaced by the assassination of JFK and the ascent of Martin Luther King Jr. Betty and the Bell Race finds a nice angle to gently and effectively comment on that period from the perspective of the young. This consideration of recent American history would make a fine choice for high school productions in integrated cities and towns. A good musical with messaging to help further the conversation and progress towards racial equality. Next up, we'll take a trip to the tank, the small arts incubator, and deeds, not words. Turn on your television, read a printed article, or go online. Today, it is easy to inform oneself about voting rights and a woman's right to choose. With both under siege, the eccentric theater company presents Deeds, Not Words. They believe now is the right time to retell two women's suffrage-era satires. This small-scale production at the Tank reconsiders plays that would have been performed regionally in a time before radio. A note in the 1868 original edition for The Spirit of 76 or The Coming Woman makes this point clearly. Quote, This play is not written for the stage, but simply for amateur performances. Entertainment deciding to push buttons and encourage thinking. Both of these plays use broad satire as the vehicle to poke fun at the establishment. Broad satire, pun intended. Clearly and loudly, these pieces champion a woman's right to vote by ridiculing the status quo. Back in the time before radio, these short pieces would be one way to spread forward-thinking ideas. How the Vote Was Won, by Cicely Hamilton and Christopher St. John, was one of the most popular and well-known suffrage plays first produced in 1909. In her well-to-do London living room, Ethel Cole is fretting about working women going on strike for the right to vote. The government has said that women do not need votes as they are all looked after by men. Unfortunately for Mrs. Cole, the maids sign on to the cause and flee. How will dinner be served? When husband Horace comes home, raw meat is on the table. Making matters worse, previously self-employed women now turn up to be supported by their nearest male relative. Mr. Cole finds distant cousins at the door with their suitcases. A woman's right to vote may be appealing, after all. Ariana Randolph Wormley Curtis, easy for you to say, and Daniel Sargent Curtis 
wrote The Spirit of 76 in 1868. The supposed period of this play is the year 1876. A future tale of horror indeed, not incidentally set at the 100th anniversary of America's independence. Thomas Carberry returns home after spending a decade in China only to find a society where women are firmly in power. The men bemoan the past when their biggest problem was a lady's dressing and spending. That's when we had it good, they say. Apparently, quote, the ballot box has crushed the hat box. Character names are humorous, such as tax assessor Mrs. Barbara Badger and Judge Susan Wigfall. Her honor has to leave a conversation abruptly to hear a proposal from the chair for the suppression of male dinner parties. What does the future look like? At election time, the women have no time to tend to babies. That responsibility falls to the men. Back in the day, this must have been great raucous fun, especially read by a group in their gracious drawing room. Directed by Chelsea Anderson Long, both plays have been updated to 2036 and 2076, underscoring concerns over women's rights in this century. The revisions are mostly additive, such as the use of cell phones and the Chinese government's suppression of news on the internet. This production only ran for two weekends. I enjoy traveling back in time, or into the future, even if the staging is underdeveloped here. Satire is not easy to pull off. The actors, especially Hannah Karpenko, who played Ethel Cole and Barbara Badger, well, each of them have their winning moments. More panicked frenzy might capture the hysteria felt in today's America, the land which picked misogynistic Donald Trump as its president. Women are marching again, and suffrage again feels like the stuff of rage. All right, all right, we're going to lighten it up a little bit now and go to the encore's revival of the musical Call Me Madam. In October 1950, Call Me Madam became the first Broadway show to surpass $1 million in ticket sales prior to its opening. The musical starred the already legendary Ethel Merman. She was in Annie Get Your Gun and Girl Crazy before this, and it was directed by George Abbott, who had done On the Town and Pal Joey. The choreography was pre-West Side Story Jerome Robbins. Irving Berlin, the composer of 1,500 songs, did the score. And Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, already successful with Anything Goes and Life with Father, they wrote the book. Big credentials created this vehicle, which had been specifically designed for the Merm, who won a Tony for her performance. A brash Texas oil heiress is named as ambassador to the fictional country of Lichtenberg, a place where they make babies and cheese. As can be found in many old-school formulaic musicals, there is a love interest for the leads and another love interest for a pair of dewy-eyed youngsters. The Encore series gives these shows a chance to be revisited for a week. While Call Me Madam didn't knock me out of my seat like Paint Your Wagon or Zorba did a few years ago, I completely enjoyed myself watching the final performance of this revival. The plot is simple. As the new ambassador from a bombastically wealthy America, 
Mrs. Sally Adams travels to and falls quickly for Cosmo Constantine, the foreign minister of financially struggling Lichtenberg. Mrs. Sally Adams, the Ethel Merman role, was played here by Carmen Cusack. The imaginary story was a very thinly veiled reference to DC society doyenne Pearl Mesta, who had recently been appointed ambassador to Luxembourg. As Cosmo, Ben Davis was regal and in great voice. He had a sexy chemistry with an amusing Miss Cusack, who seemed slightly challenged by the booming vocal requirements of the role. More a wisecracking socialite than a boisterous Texan, she landed the jokes firmly. My mother always told me when in danger, cross your legs. The kids, however, in Call Me Madam, stole the show. Lauren Warsham humorously played Princess Maria, the protected daughter of the realm. She falls hard for Mrs. Adams' assistant, Kenneth Gibson. He was played by Jason Gote. The role of Kenneth has the show's two best songs, the duets It's a Lovely Day Today with the Princess and You're Just in Love with His Boss. In a musical nearly 70 years old, Mr. Gote made the role sparklingly fresh and very, very funny. His singing was even better, noticeably appreciated by the enraptured audience. Last November, I saw this actor in Transport Group's extraordinary musical, Renaissance. While that turn was also excellent, this one should put him squarely in the category of New York's top-drawer musical theater performers. Carol Kane, from the television show Taxi and the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Daryl Hammond, from SNL, added to the fun as the goofy royalty of this small country. Ensemble numbers, such as the Ocarina and Lichtenberg, were pleasing with enjoyable choreography by Dennis Jones. A show like Call Me Madam requires a willingness to settle down in one seat and let old school wash over you. The evening is not a revelation, but instead a celebration of popular musical comedy entertainments from the past. For the 75th anniversary of New York City Center, Encores has produced its first repeat. Call Me Madam starred Tyne Daly during the series' second year in 1995. The critics were mixed when this show first opened in the 50s. For this particular revival, they were largely negative. I thought this production was charming nostalgia. I soaked in the bath of old school, and it was indeed a lovely day. Now I want to tell you about Ballet Boys, spelled B-O-Y-Z. Founded in 2000, Ballet Boys is a British company specializing in modern dance. They are known for their extensive stage and television work and have performed in New York before. Young Men is the piece that I saw at the Joyce Theater. This particular dance was first choreographed by Ivan Perez in 2014. Two years later, the company made a wordless feature-length film innovatively incorporating dance into its storytelling. The current show is a hybrid of the two, scenes from the film and selections of live movement. A group of young men under supreme stress while facing the horrors of World War I is the subject matter. The film opens in a chapel with two women praying. 
The older woman may be the mother of a soldier who is sitting beside his wife. Then the story quickly turns to scenes of war and dying. There is a segment on basic training. The film's athleticism bursts forward as the dancers recreate the scene three-dimensionally. The process of dying is a dramatically rendered layback followed by a slump to the floor. The move is performed and repeated, signifying the extensive deaths faced by these young men. The film is quite beautiful and gritty at the same time. The bunker scene is particularly arresting for both its storytelling and its depiction of the mental stress and anguish written on the soldiers' faces. Always visually fascinating, the production occasionally gets bogged down a bit in its storytelling and deliberately repetitive movement. The score, composed by Keaton Henson, is lush and harshly gorgeous, very well suited to the material. Ballet Boys is impressive for using a tumbling and angular modern dance choreography to spotlight the physical danger and emotional crisis confronted by men at war. The inherent alluring appeal of this dance seems somewhat at odds with the brutal nature of the subject matter. As a result, young men occasionally straddles a fine line between condemnation and commemoration. One of the soldiers returns home at the end, however, with a physically agonizing case of PTSD. The serious and lasting effects of war coalesce in a scene with joyful reunion mixed with terrifying sadness. The seven men and two women on stage are very talented performers. Some throw their bodies to the ground and the thumping sound is jarringly intense. Accompanying them is a unique film which incorporates dance-like artistry into a very grim story. Ballet Boys scores high on originality and artistic merit. Now, let's leave New York briefly and go to Osseo, Minnesota and the Yellow Tree Theater Company's original musical, Flowers for the Room. Driving to see Flowers for the Room on a chilly winter evening to the northwest Minneapolis suburb of Osseo, Siri, well, she got very confused and started sending us in circles. Located in a small strip mall is the Yellow Tree Theater, now celebrating its 11th season. This small professional company is housed at an expansive former furniture storage facility. The space is extremely welcoming. A large, cleverly designed lounge area with ample seating allows its patrons to relax and chat before the show. Hang your coat, grab a glass of wine, and prepare to join the local community for an evening's entertainment. Through a large curtain is a nice, black box-type theater with noticeably comfortable seating. Flowers for the Room is a new musical written by Jessica Lynn Peterson, the company's co-founder, along with her husband Jason. Inspiration for this piece was based on a story she read. A woman had a stroke in her first year of marriage and became confined to a wheelchair. The show explores the contrasting tensions between I do, always and forever, against the harsh realities of difficult life choices and heartbreaking disappointment. Ms. Peterson plays Allison, who is marrying Jake, as this story unfolds. Jake is played by Zachary Stouffer. Opposites do attract here. 
He's a successful numbers guy, and she's a painter. At the wedding reception, Jake sings the wonderfully witty, country-flavored song titled Color Me in Love, and his infatuation is infectious. Color is a recurring motif throughout. A tragedy soon follows, and Allison winds up in ICU. Flowers for the Room proceeds to examine the relationships between her husband, his brother, her nurse, and a social worker. Despite her incapacitation, Allison remains a spectral presence, emotionally connecting with the orbit around the room. Zachary Stouffer was superb as Jake. Filled with passion and love, then grief and despair, his emotional journey was vivid and deeply wrought. The three supporting roles were all nicely played by Daniel S. Hines, Kendall Ann Thompson, and Nora Long. The book gave them enough backstory to let us get to know them. Allison, at the center of the story, was the more difficult one to embrace. The words Miss Peterson wrote for herself are mystical and new agey, such as, I want to live more slowly. These feelings sometimes felt incongruous with the comic lines that occasionally were plopped in. I wanted to know Allison on a deeper level, since every other character seemed more developed. Why is Jake so in love that he is willing to uproot his whole life for her? The flashback scene does not help in that regard. It pushes us away, not towards her. Maybe a little more time spent getting to know Allison before the ICU would help illuminate the beauty Jake adores. Blake Thompson and Matt Reilly have written some nice character songs and ballads. The wittiest ones were standouts. The talented actress and author, Miss Peterson amazingly makes the improbable, yet amusing, pastor and professional wrestler hybrid work. Directed by Mr. Peterson and featuring some intriguing stagecraft, Flowers for the Room impresses for its thoughtfully challenging material. Even more exciting is to see a thriving professional theater company producing original musicals with a community embracing its artistic risk-taking and complex thematic explorations. A wonderful theater to visit if you're in the Minneapolis area, the Yellow Tree Theater at Osseo. The final musical we're going to talk about in this month's podcast is at the Roundabout Theater. The show is a revival of Merrily We Roll Along. The Stephen Sondheim musical, Merrily We Roll Along, opened on November 16, 1981, and closed after 16 performances and 52 extended previews. A notorious flop. I finally had the chance to see the show in a short one-week 2012 Encores production starring Colin Donnell, Celia Keenan-Bolger, and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Pleasantly surprised... I enjoyed the story, and certainly the score. Why was the original such a disaster? Roundabout has once again paired up with the Fiasco Theatre Company. Their last partnership four years ago was the successful reimagining of Sondheim's Into the Woods. Their interpretation impressed Mr. Sondheim enough that he met with the artistic team, providing access to his archives and earlier versions of the script and cut songs. This production collapses the cast down to six actors. The story is the focus, unencumbered by an ensemble. 
a dissection of earnest collaborative relationships turned fragile and ultimately broken over time, that story takes center stage. In the original Broadway outing, there were dozens of people on stage. In researching for this review, I went to see a video recording of the original production from November 1981, the month it opened. An illegal taping was confiscated and donated to the New York Public Library. From either the balcony or mezzanine, someone captured this entire show. The quality was obviously below average, but I could see and hear clearly. Was the original that bad? In a word, yes. Many productions after the first one corrected perhaps the fatal flaw of casting young actors in the show. Merrily is the story of three fresh-faced friends who arrive in New York in 1955. By 1980, they are estranged and bitter, the joy of life long since buried. The musical's book by George Firth goes backwards in time. When we first meet Mary, she is an angry alcoholic. With a young lady in the role, it felt like watching high school play acting. That is not the case here with Jesse Austrian's take on the role. In 1981, Mary's hairband never changed through all 25 years. The cheap set design reinforced the youth angle. Bleachers, not kidding, moved around and were reconfigured. The large ensemble frequently entered and distractedly remained on stage, even during quieter, more reflective moments. The costumes were bizarre. The characters often wore sweatshirts with their names or descriptive slogans printed on their chests. To make the story clearer, how do you read that from the balcony? Director Hal Prince's misfires notwithstanding, I probably would have enjoyed myself as a relatively new theater-goer back in the day. The score has so many terrific songs. In Fiasco's version, the songs are certainly the star. Comparing the difference, watching Franklin Shepard, Inc., then and now, perfectly illustrates the improvements achieved here. This particular song creates the major fissure between successful Broadway composers Frank, who's played by Ben Seinfeld, and Charlie, The scene is a television interview in which Charlie heaves abuse on his partner selling out to Hollywood. In the original, self-absorbed Frank is at the piano. A chorus member unsteadily holds a long microphone overhead, shifting it between seated Charlie and the host. When the song arrives, lights are dimmed while Charlie gets a spotlight solo. In this new staging... The three characters are always visually present, and the rage Frank is experiencing has time to percolate in full view. Instead of storming off the stage when the lights come back up, his discomfort escalates and the tension registers. None of the three main characters are truly likable throughout this story arc, which provides critical depth and clarity to the dissolution of their friendships. Fiasco's co-founder Noah Brody directed this revival with some nice touches cleverly embracing and winking at the reverse chronology. Derek McLean's set design hints at a backstage memory play, which is really what the show is all about. The entire cast is solid, but admittedly not all are virtuoso singers. 
in the performance I saw, understudy Joe Joseph was excellent as Charlie. This is first and foremost a storytelling production. Since that was a major issue with the original, this revival has a real purpose to exist. Notable adjustments made include altering the character who sings the heartbreaking Not a Day Goes By. The change is smart. Certain scenes were shortened, and the bloat of the original, notably the transitions repeating the title song, have been effectively stripped away. In the end, the still imperfect Merrily We Roll Along remains one of musical theater's old friends worth your time. Over the last decade, some stripped-down versions of Sondheim shows have been revelatory. The thoughtful Fiasco Theater Troupe has given us a reason to enjoy this score once again and reconsider this continually evolving piece. Of the three stagings I've now seen, this one is closest to a good thing going. Now to a revival of the play, State of the Union at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Having lost the last four presidential elections to the same Democrat, the Republicans desperately won a winner in 1948. Strategist James Conover has an idea. Why not nominate a successful businessman who is a populist outsider? Aircraft industrialist Grant Matthews is summoned to his D.C. home. With a major newspaper publisher and a political reporter also in attendance, Mr. Matthews is convinced to run and shake up the State of the Union. A Pulitzer Prize winner, this 1945 play was likely a riff on real-life utility magnet and improbable 1940 presidential nominee Wendell Wilkie. He changed political parties the year before from Democrat to Republican. Mr. Wilkie was well-known for standing up to Congress against plans for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Our fictional hero also has a backbone and a fine reputation. How can he get elected while having an affair with Kay Thorndike, the newspaper publisher? A party-switching businessman in a relationship outside his marriage with no political experience wants to run for president of the United States? Impossible. Ridiculously far-fetched, you bewail. Seventy years have passed since this successful play and the Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn film adaptation was written. Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, who wrote Anything Goes and Life with Father, are perhaps best known for collaborating on the book for The Sound of Music. Having also seen Call Me Madam at Encores this month, apparently it's Lindsay and Krauss month. Uncannily fresh, though, State of the Union is filled with crisp dialogue, witty banter, slithering irony, and thoughtful perspectives before it detonates into a delectably enjoyable third act. In order to kick off the campaign on the right foot, the rumors of Mr. Matthews' affair need to be dealt with. He and his wife Mary have been estranged for more than a year. How to convince her to stand by her husband's side as he announces his candidacy? She knows of the affair and is described as a tough lady prone to aggressive behavior. Mary is so disgusted with the divided politics of this country that she can't even read a newspaper. She says, I get so mad. Expertly played by Anna Marie Sell, this character becomes our guide through the muck of the Washington swamp. Cocktails are served at every opportunity, which makes this comedy lighter than it may sound.
Mary hears that she's the most attractive plank in her husband's platform. The machinations of fundraising, compromise, and special interests all get thrown into the mix. Important figures promise votes for favors. How can you deliver the votes of a free people? The play responds to that question, and it's a doozy. Lazy, ignorant, and prejudiced people are not free. State of the Union is a long three-act play, which requires a little patience as it simmers until its grand payoff. Laura Livingston's direction of the Act Three Sazerac-induced truth-telling is really exemplary. In a tiny off-off-Broadway house, a sizable dinner party is staged so naturalistically I felt like a fly on the wall. I did indeed laugh. I also fretted about a political system still worried about the next election rather than the nation's future. Ms. Sell's portrayal of Mary, Michael Durkin's strategist Conover, and Linda Kurloff's brilliant southern sunbeam Lulabelle Alexandra were especially praiseworthy performances. Vincent Gunn's unfussily attractive set design commendably encapsulate the scene changes. The overhead suspended crown molding was a nice touch. Offstage interchanges and frequent entrances and exits are rarely handled this clearly. State of the Union is a finely mounted production. This is very good off-off-Broadway theater, both entertaining and provocative. The Metropolitan Playhouse explores America's diverse theatrical heritage, often focusing on older literary works and those based on American history. This selection is particularly inspired and should become a play revived at least by regional theaters everywhere. The 2020 election is not so far away. Find a few big stars, and this one might also be ripe for a Broadway revival. More impossible things have happened. In the mood for another comedy? Let's head down to the New York Theater Workshop and the play Hurricane Diane. Feeling neglected, Dionysus is looking for a little love, or, at the very least, some worshippers. The Greek god of the grape harvest and wine has been spending time in a lesbian commune in Vermont. Our god is now a goddess, and a very butch one at that. Hurricane Diane hatches a plan to start recruiting acolytes in Monmouth County, New Jersey, Perfectly embodied by Mia Barron, Carol Fleischer has been carefully clipping pretty photos of her dream garden from HGTV magazine. Landscaper Diane, played by Becca Blackwell, she listens intently but has no intention of designing a yard with curb appeal. Ever hear of permaculture, she asks? A grassless yard with bugs? Carol scoffs and does not hire Diane to do the work. Diane is the embodiment of Dionysus here in this play. Recounting this story to three neighbors from the cul-de-sac, Carol lets them know that Diane made a pass at her. Are you sure? The girls dissect for clues. Beth is the quieter one whose husband has recently left her. Her front lawn has been mowed in months. Renee is now a successful businesswoman and works for the gardening magazine. She knows about permaculture and thinks the idea would make a great feature article. 
The fourth member of this team is purebred New Jersey Italian palazzo-loving Pam Annunziata, hysterically played by Daniel Skratstad. She's loud, wears big heels, and is a superbly realized caricature. All of these women are stereotypes with familiar stories and worries. This group is gossipy, supportive, judgmental, and a great deal of fun to watch. Playwright Madeline George is clearly comfortable writing hilarious zingers. Hurricane Diane is certainly a comedy. When the play is over, you realize, though, that you've just sat through the most entertaining lecture on climate change ever. This play is smart, clever, and over-the-top ridiculous. The pawpaw tree gets multiple jokes. Why does Diane travel to a beach community in New Jersey? One which has recovered from the devastation wreaked by a hurricane named Sandy in 2012? The answer is completely selfish. If humans wipe themselves off the planet with continually rising temperatures leading to massive starvation, who will be left to worship the gods? Shouldn't these ladies be especially amenable to doing their part to restore the earth to a healthier place? Director Lee Silverman expertly weaves this swirling plot from a coffee clatch to a religious epiphany, only returned to the cul-de-sac for a little more gossip and truth-telling. This is the kind of play when certain combinations of characters reappear and you feel excited to see what next. A co-production between the New York Theater Workshop and Women's Project Theater, I highly recommend this crafty eco-manifesto. Acting, costumes, set, lighting, and music were top-notch. Carol knows exactly the type of garden she wants in her patch of the world. Carol is living the life she ardently believes is best with all her heart and soul. Carol's monologue near the end of the play is monstrously effective. In it, I heard the stubbornness of the human race. I saw scientific evidence about climate change falling on deaf ears. I felt this playwright hitting the bullseye. That speech should have been the end of the play. The tacton coda deflated what soared so high just moments before. Does our goddess succeed in her quest? This highly memorable god versus mortal battle is very amusing, as the New Jersey suburbanite can be a most vexing creature. Hurricane Diane, the play, is unquestionably a winner. Hurry to see it before biblical floods wipe out the East Village. More serious fare at the public theater and seawall slash a life. When I heard Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge were going to join forces and present two one-act monologues, I had to go. These famous actors have been exceptional on the New York stage in recent years. Mr. Sturridge was nominated for a Tony for his work in Orphans and was phenomenal in the memorable 1984. I was first impressed by Mr. Gyllenhaal in an off-Broadway production of If There Is, I Haven't Found It Yet. His George Shaw and Sunday in the Park with George was excellent. In Seawall, A Life, these actors tackle plays by two different authors, but with linked themes. Mr. Sturridge's Seawall is first. His young man seems casual and guarded, but then settles in to talk about how his life came together. Marriage and a child were revelations. 
His family travels to France to vacation with her father, enjoying time by the sea. At the beach, he realizes that he is, quote, the mathematical direct polar opposite of Daniel Craig. He is wry and endearing. A tragedy occurs which shakes them all to their core. The description of grieving and loss is understated and painful. Simon Stevens, the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime and On the Shore of the Wide World, has created a character who may never heal. When he walks off stage, the sadness looms. Nick Payne wrote Constellations, which starred Mr. Gyllenhaal and Ruth Wilson on Broadway. That play featured quick changes in time and story, as is the case with a life. Like Seawall, this story also features a young man who is facing a marriage and fatherhood, but is also dealing with an elderly parent. Bouncing back and forth between storylines, Mr. Gyllenhaal's delivery was casual and relaxed. He stands in the spotlight as if he were performing a routine. The setting seemed odd given the moody lighting and expansive use of the two-tier stage in Seawall. Sadness was conceptual here rather than fully realized. For theatergoers looking to watch fine actors take on serious and depressing fare, there are rewards in Seawall a life. If both parts were equal in quality, I would recommend giving this a try. There were quite a few people seated near us who came to see stars. They were clearly not connected to the material. After the play ended, the guy in front of me apologized to his friends for buying tickets. I appreciated the opportunity to let these stories wash over me. I just wish I had been less disappointed. The two plays work together well thematically. One is just far more riveting. The next revival at the Mint Theater is the play The Price of Thomas Scott. The Mint Theater can be consistently relied upon to present interesting, high-quality rediscoveries of lost plays. In 2010, they launched a multi-year series of plays by the forgotten Irish playwright Teresa Davey. With The Price of Thomas Scott, they are undertaking a project entitled Meet Miss Baker. Both of these women were writing plays about the female experience and achieved success on the London stage in the first half of the 20th century. In this particular play, the author Elizabeth Baker muses, I wish I knew how far conscience ought to take us. Thomas Scott is a draper in London. He's married and has two children. The business is failing. A devoutly religious man, his life is filled with church going. His wife seems unhappy but is supportive. Daughter Annie is a talented hat designer who dreams of traveling to Paris and creatively expanding her craft. Son Leonard yearns for schooling rather than following in his father's footsteps. There is no money to ensure either of these wishes come true. The young individuals in this play discuss that the world seems to be changing all around them. The latest craze involves dance halls. As you might imagine, the religious folks see them as dens of iniquity. Annie ponders whether dancing is really so bad as it's, quote, so easy to misunderstand when you don't know. Religious prejudices uninformed by actual experience is the territory explored in this play. Is her father's view that dancing is a sin just another religious fad whose time will pass? 
The most interesting angle in the price of Thomas Scott is the ambiguity of the answer to that question. Annie's father receives a financially lucrative offer for his shop, which could change their lives forever. He wrestles with the dilemma of what the shop will become if he sells. Successful businessman Wicksteed could not understand Mr. Scott's rigid morality. Read your history, he notes. How many martyrs were bigoted fools? Annie is the central focus of this good play. Women are entering the workforce and considering a life that isn't simply marriage. She contrasts with her mother, who follows her husband's lead despite her true feelings. Thomas Scott wrestles with his conscience as he considers societal progress. Is progress the devil's own argument in allowing evil to permeate the world? It may seem ludicrous today to consider dancing a sin, This play forces you to consider a world inhabited with conservative and restrictive values. I know a very religious person who would not let their children read the Harry Potter series because it contained real magic spells. In my view, such uninformed prejudices seem idiotic. I find ignorance and religious fervor a scary partnership. What I liked about this play is its consideration of that viewpoint from both sides. Is a strong moral conviction not merely a prejudice, but a belief system worth admiring? The Mint usually mounts the highest quality off-Broadway productions, and the price of Thomas Scott is no exception. Vicki R. Davis's set design is a simple and beautiful rendering of a draper's shop from long ago. The actors do a nice job embodying these relatively simply drawn characters. Donald Corrin's Thomas and Emma Gear's Annie were nicely shaded characterizations which invited sympathetic respect for their positions. Within this solid cast, Andrew Fillets as Scott's lodger and Annie's hopeful suitor, as well as Mitch Greenberg as Wicksteed, the businessman, they stood out for their realistically drawn men of the past. If a man can reconcile his actions with his conscience, does anybody have a right to question him? The Price of Thomas Scott is not a great play somehow rediscovered for the ages. It is, however, a very thoughtful meditation which does not come across as preachy. Instead, Elizabeth Baker wonders aloud and everyone's point of view is respectfully considered. I look forward to this series at the Mint Theater. Her comedy Partnership and her first performed and perhaps best-known play Chains will be upcoming productions. Our next play also features a young lady growing up, although a little earlier in age, and 50 years after The Price of Thomas Scott. That play is called Random Acts. In 1966, Renata Hinrich and her family pile into their brand new Ford Galaxy. They are moving from Boston to Chicago. Dad has just graduated from the seminary and taken a position at Grace Lutheran Church. Located on the south side, the church is steps away from Ashland Avenue. It is like the Berlin Wall, the dividing line between east side, where the black people live, and the west side, where the white people live. Random Acts is a story of one young girl's memories growing up in the middle of the civil rights struggle in 1960s America. The inspiration for this play was born when Mitch Hinrich was living in New York City during 9-11. 
Childhood memories came flooding back, so she interviewed her parents to fill in more details. While she has written a multi-character play, it is performed as a monologue. She plays her kindergarten self, mother and father, the school teacher, her boyfriend, and others. What first appears to be an elongated acting exercise slowly transforms into a touching meditation on specific incidents that mold our character and shape our lives. I grew up in Raleigh, New Jersey. My childhood best friend lived on a street, which was also sort of a dividing line between the white and black sides. His family had emigrated from Granada. We thought it ironic that in the middle of the block lived an interracial couple. That specific house felt like the exact boundary line between two segregated worlds. Random acts brought a lot of childhood memories back. For that reason alone, I was captivated by this memoir. As a very young elementary school student, she faces racial confrontation with classmates in her father's church and ultimately and frighteningly during the riots which break out when Martha Luther King Jr. is assassinated. She's a doting caregiver for her dolls and dreams of being just like Julie Andrews when she grows up. Miss Henrich is a product of her time and admirably has reflected on how it has shaped the woman standing on this stage. Serious and thoughtful, this play manages to be brightly positive in tone. Earlier the same week I saw Random Axe, I watched Black Sheep, a documentary short nominated for an Oscar this year. In order to escape the violence in London, a young black man moves with his family to a very white town in England. He narrates the backward-looking story of how he tried to fit into a world that only saw the color of his skin. Far different in tone, this film and this play both use intimate observations to not only comment on racial prejudice, but also how it impacts one person's development. That individualized perspective enables the subject matter to become vivid and powerful. Random Acts is nicely staged by director Jesse D. Hill. Chika Shimizu's scenic design was simple and effective. Miss Inrich remembers her church's stained glass windows filled with stories. With interesting lighting effects by Daisy Long, the stage hints at a theatrical sermon filled with stories. Not the lecturing kind, but a reflective one. Random acts of kindness can be overwhelmingly inspirational. Random acts, the play, is proof of that. The last two plays I'm going to talk about this month are highly original, often very funny, and jaw-droppingly unique. The first one at Off-Off Broadway's The Tank is titled Eat the Devil. A foul-mouthed SNL skit with political commentary? An indictment of porn? A sci-fi apocalypse spoof? An exploitation of conservative media for our entertainment pleasure? A lampoon of the internet? A mockery of evangelicals on television? An explanation for the appeal of screaming goats? Eat the Devil is improbably and hilariously all of those and much more. A terrifying virus is infecting post-fact America. 
In an airplane, two flight attendants deliver their instructions. In the event of an emergency, flotation tubes will shoot out of the plane's asshole. Meanwhile, on the ground, Mia has been invented and her programming is being finalized. She happens to be a sex robot whose early phrases include, Why don't you show me what you got in there, big boy? Scott Fetterman's high-quality video design is already in progress when you take your seat. Freezing goats. Animal cosplay. A talk show with the caption, Will you be replaced by Samantha the sex robot? Eat the Devil has been written by Nadja Leonard Hooper and Dan Nuxall, perhaps in response to a disturbing internet binge. The comedy they have created is crude and rude for sure. It is also sharply satirical and filled with a barrage of extraordinarily clever one-liners skewering today's America. Kalinda Schuster is unforgettable as Mia, the sex toy designed as an idealized woman. The performance is physically superb. An intelligent robot, she has been designed to have many different modes. One unforgettable, and dare I say classic, monologue Schuster is given to perform is bitingly cynical and beyond hysterical. The entire cast is remarkably fine given the loony antics in this script. They fully commit to these ridiculous characters with realistically drawn cartoons. Why the videos about goats and people dressed as animals at the start of the show? Well, persecution is a major plot point. InfoWars' Alex Jones and Fox News' Tommy Lauren are in a major tizzy. America is under attack. I hear the globalists coming. They don't see that cosplay is just some gender-confused teen in a Bulbasaur costume. They see democracy dying in darkness. Thank goodness the television evangelicals are praying for a return to sanity while collecting donations and selling queso. Director Nick Flint and his entire creative team have impressively staged this chaotic madness. This production is from One Year Lease Theater. I saw their excellent show, Pool No Water, many years ago. In that piece, and this one, movement is critical to the storytelling. Like many great comedies that swing towards the fence, not every moment is a home run. There are definitely foul balls and perhaps a few extra innings. Like all shows presented at the Tank, this is a limited run through March 9th. Without hesitation, I will return and see the next iteration of, of this inspired jolt of insanity. Wake up, sheeple. We're talking about end times. Last, and certainly not least, is a new play, Mary's Seacoal, at Lincoln Center Theater. The story of Florence Nightingale is well known. She came to fame as a manager and trainer of nurses during the Crimean War. At the same time, in the same war, a British Jamaican Creole woman named Mary Seacole wanted to join the ranks to nurse the wounded soldiers. She was rejected. Undaunted and persistent, she and a distant relative funded her journey to Crimea. Her story was memorialized in her 1857 autobiographical novel, 
Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. The immensely talented playwright Jackie Sibley's Drury tells this story in her new play, Mary Seacole. In the book, Mary recalls the rejection. Was it possible that American prejudices against color had some root here? Did these ladies shrink from accepting my aid because my blood flowed beneath a somewhat duskier skin than theirs? Race relations and prejudice are not new territory for Ms. Drury. She floored me with the uniquely structured Fairview last year. This play ups the ante for shifts in time, character, place, and tone. I cannot be sure I understood it all. I am, however, resolute in my admiration of this incredibly inventive narrative. Scene after scene challenges the viewer to travel a nonlinear path. The play opens with Mary talking about her life. The following scene is a hospital room with three generations of a white family. One is elderly and very ill. Mary is now a nurse today. Apparently, Miss Drury is going to be drawing parallels across centuries. She does, but not in any way that could be predictable. If Fairview was distinctive in its storytelling, Mary Seacole is even bolder in dramatizing its themes. Suffice it to say that this one-act phantasmagoria is filled with astonishing imagery and fascinating language. Describing her father, Mary comments on his doxologizing claptrap. A new word to me, doxology is a liturgical formula of praise to God. Liliana Blaine Cruz has impressively directed this challenging and thought-provoking work. Individual moments are never less than interesting and occasionally are mind-blowing. Quincy Tyler Bernstein is a colossal Mary. She is both a historical figure and a modern woman shaded by a world that is not colorblind. Will it ever be? Like Mary Seacole, she perseveres. Six actresses each have roles that range from complex emotions to kooky humor. All of them are excellent. This play is for anyone who wants to go to the theater and see something extraordinarily original, a little perplexing, bizarrely hilarious, and dense with ideas. Our history books portray Florence Nightingale as angelic. She reportedly wrote, I had the greatest difficulty in repelling Mrs. Seacole's advances and in preventing association between her and my nurses, absolutely out of the question. Anyone who employs Mrs. Seacole will introduce much kindness, also much drunkenness and improper conduct. Wow, Victorian shade. Mary was voted Greatest Black Britain in a 2004 poll. Why is she such an obscure figure here? Why is her pioneering nursing work unknown to us? She was the daughter of a Scottish soldier and a Creole woman. Is that the reason she's an untold story? Playwright Jackie Sibley's Drury gives us many things to ponder after spending time with her work. Fairview is returning to the New York stage in June at the Theater for a New Audience in Brooklyn. Both plays are highly, highly recommended. Thank you for listening to this episode from Theater Reviews from My Seat. A couple of musicals opening shortly on Broadway, Be More Chill and Oklahoma, were both reviewed 
in their off-Broadway incarnations of the past year. I loved Be More Chill, and I was in the minority, but I hated Oklahoma. Uh, you can check out those reviews on my website at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, please send me an email at theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews on the website. Thank you and enjoy your theater going.